Our scripture this morning is taken from John chapter 5. We're going to read just the first 18 verses, but I would encourage you to read on because after that 18th verse, Jesus really talks about things that are important in terms of what this sign that he has performed means in terms of his own relationship to us and to the Father. I've entitled the message, uh, Do You Want to Be Made Well? And I I thank uh, the children's worship leader here uh, for putting it so well. The healing of the heart is what is so absolutely necessary, and uh, that's what we will come to as we read through this. Begin at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five rooted, uh, roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been living, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God, his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the reading of God's Word this morning. In John's Gospel, we are brought back now to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is there. We don't know if he came with his disciples. It's not important to this story. But he's there for one of the feasts. There were three major feasts that the Jews celebrated, which had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. You couldn't celebrate them at home or in Galilee. You had to go up to the temple to worship and those feast days. Now Jesus was there, and he comes across what was called the Pool of Bethesda, a pool that had five-sided portico on it. And around that pool were the disabled, the lame, the blind, and so on. Now there are a couple of quick facts that I just want to throw out to you to think about. There were a number of people back in the early 1800s who were trying to disprove the fact that the Bible was written by John, that John was actually writing at that time about his um, relationship with Jesus. 
And one of the evidences that they were pointing to was the fact that, well, there is no such thing as the pool of Bethesda. Nobody ever heard of a five-sided pool. And, um, and so there was the, the discreditors. And now, <clears throat> in the late 1800s, uh, through the excavations of archaeologists, they have actually uncovered the pool. And sure enough, it had five porticos. There were two pools, and the way it was arranged showed five sides. So that proves the fact. The second thing, the second thing I just point out to you is that uh, if you're reading through your Bible, you'll notice perhaps that there is no verse 4. Hmm? Didn't know that, did you? Verse 3, verse 5. What happened to verse 4? Well, the ancient writers who were copyists of the texts uh, in the further on into the history of the church thought it was wise to give some explanation as to what that pool was all about. And so they wrote into the margin of the text something about when the angel of the Lord stirred the waters of the pool, then the first person into the pool would be healed. And um, they were trying to make some kind of explanation for why there was such a pool in Jerusalem. The Greeks and Romans had pools called the Asclepions, and they believed that the gods would actually heal people who were in that water. But that was not a Jewish understanding at all. So the Jews had this idea that an angel would come and stir up the waters. The mineral-rich waters of that pool would be stirred up somehow, and the first person in would be healed. Well, they put that in the margins, but now as we come away with some very early texts, it doesn't have that in the margins. It doesn't have it in the, in the, in the verses either. And so it's, it's, it's left out. So now we don't have a verse 4. But it's a more complete way of saying the truth of the Scriptures. Now that statement as an explanation is not, is not really what we want to talk about this morning. So let's get on with it. There's so much we could say about the events of uh, chapter 5. Of course, there's the overarching issue of, of the signs that Jesus was doing to prove his authenticity, that he really is the Son of God. He really is God himself incarnated. And then there's the issue that Jesus was always arguing with them about, about the Sabbath keeping, and the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, as Jesus would put it. And we'll come up to those, those issues again as we look into the chapters ahead. But this morning, I would like to direct our thoughts into the two interactions that Jesus has with this man at the pool of Bethesda. The first one when he asks him that awe-inspiring question, do you want to be made well? Jesus comes across this man who has been an invalid, we're told, invalid, notice the word, he's not valid, for 38 years. 38 years, imagine that. The average lifespan of people living in that day was uh, 35 to 40 years. The reality is that this man has had no real validity in his life. All his life long he has been cared for. He's felt useless. And yet somehow he has had to survive the poverty, the squalor that he's living in, lying around on a, on a mat, 
perhaps having to be carried there every day by his family members or friends. And this mat was certainly not a celiopostropedic mat. He was living in squalor. And when Jesus sees the man, he has to ask him that one strange question. I've often wondered, what kind of question is it? An invalid, paralyzed, unable to move, hopeless, useless in society, who wouldn't want to be healed? Jesus has that question on his mind because I believe the Holy Spirit gave him some information that he needed. He understands two things about this man that we want to look at. He understands, first of all, that he knows how deep and difficult it is for people to change their lives. We often naturally choose to live in misery rather than to experience the mystery of the unknown. We choose the misery because we know how to manage all of that. But we're not sure of the mystery. The best example of that, of course, is the Israelite people coming out of Egypt. For 400 and some years, they were living down there in Egypt under the horrible oppression of the Egyptians. They were slaves. They were crying out to God. The people groaned in their misery, the scriptures say, Exodus 2, and cried out for help because of their slavery. And God heard their cries, and he delivered them from Pharaoh with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And the people were on the other side of the, of the Red Sea, and they recognized that God was not only going to deliver them out of Egypt, but he was going to bring them someplace new, a land that flowed with milk and honey, he promised a land that had houses that they hadn't built and gardens they hadn't planted. He was going to make a, a ready-made place for them to live, and it was going to be a land of rest, a land of peace. And he promised to go with them every step of the way. Bright future. But there was mystery involved. So even on the way into the wilderness, just a month after their supplies began to run out, the people began to cry out to Moses and ask the question, why are we here? Would that we had died in Egypt by the hand of the Lord, that we remember that we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, but you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, and they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish and we ate, and, the, and that cost nothing, and cucumbers, and melons, and leeks, and onions, and garlic. Can you imagine? Here was a people who didn't like the fact that they were living in the middle of a mystery. Every day, they didn't know what was happening next. They were in a place and circumstances where they had never been before. And I guess, in a sense, we understand that. What will happen tomorrow? What new challenges will we face? Living down in Egypt, it was pretty predictable. Miserable, yes, but predictable. I guess that's the sense that uh, we have to take ourselves in this world, that we sometimes would choose misery over 
mystery. But what is a bit surprising is that even a year later, after they had encamped at Mount Sinai for a year's time and God had given them the commandments, he had organized them as a people, that as they began their march now toward the promised land, just three days after the, as the march began, they were complaining again about food and water. And they say, oh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and the cucumbers, melons and leeks. I mean, they were addicted to cucumbers. And they were saying to each other, we remember sitting around the fire on, on an evening and, and we remember the stories we could tell and all of the good things that we had happening in our lives. But, but this, we, we don't know what's happening. And what's even more surprising is that after 40 years, 40 years of being led by God through the wilderness, providing for them with manna and water on a day-by-day basis, these people were going up along the backside of the, Red sea, of the Dead Sea and ready to move into the Promised Land. And once again, even as they were ready to enter into the Promised Land, they were saying these things, why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place. There's no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. They balked at the mystery and wanted to go back into misery. Do you understand how that works? Even when God promises to lead us into a new place, a better place. We face the mysteries of what does that mean, and we bulk. Here's a little boy who's playing in a mud puddle on his parents' yard, playing in the driveway with his trucks, just mud. His parents come out and say, let's go to the beach. The water there is beautiful, and there's sand that you can play in. But the boy has never been to the beach. He doesn't know what to expect, and so he says, no, I want to stay here. I'll play by my mud puddle here. And they try to convince him at every turn, no, this is, you will love being at the beach, but he doesn't want to get in the car, he doesn't want to do anything, he just lays there on his side, pushing his trucks through the mud. That's life. What does Jesus say to this man by the pool? I believe Jesus asked the question like this, if it were appropriate for this man's condition. Do you want to change? Do you want your paralysis to be taken away? to walk again. Jesus would no doubt ask us the same question about parts of our lives that we have clung on to. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to know the full power that I can, I, I can exert in your life if you allow me to? To know how good I could be to bless you, to encourage you, And we might, like this paralyzed man, make excuses. Say, well, you know, I would like that, but, but it's never happened. 
And we say, the beach? No, thank you. I'll stay here by my mud puddle. It goes back beyond just unknowns. It goes all the way back to our own fallenness. The deepest sins of our lives. You remember back in Genesis 3 when Satan came and approached Adam and Eve in the garden. The argument that he had was simple. Did God really say that you mightn't eat of this tree? You know, you know, Satan says, why God is doing that. Because he's trying to keep you from from knowing everything. Knowing both good and evil. He's keeping you from understanding what's going to happen to you in the future. And so you can't trust God. Because if you knew everything that God knows, you would be able to handle the mysteries of life. You, you want to be like God, knowing both good and evil. And then it says the woman saw that the fruit was good to look at and was desired for gaining wisdom. And she took some, ate, and gave to her husband. So, we've uncovered something of the deepest human problem, you see. We want to know, as much as God knows, what's going to happen to us before we enter into the mysteries of life. How many times don't we have that circumstance where we have this paralysis of analysis in our own lives where we find ourselves lying on our mats, lying beside the mud puddle, and refusing to step out in confidence because we don't know. <clears throat> That's the real issue that I see in this account. Here's a man who was asked a simple question. And instead of saying, oh, yes, absolutely, I want to be made well, he makes his excuses. Is it possible, then, that after 38 years of survival, 38 years of eking out his existence, as miserable as it is, that he had gotten quite familiar with his circumstances, comfortable even in his misery, so that the idea of being able to walk again, well, that might require some responsibility. Maybe his support system would break away. If he lived, what would happen to the charity of others? You see, it goes on and on, questions that are unanswered. So Jesus says, get up and walk. And he does, and he picks up his mat and walks, and he was healed. Ah, but was he? That's the question. Two things make us wonder. When he was asked by the Jews, who told you to get up and walk and carry your mat? The man says, well, I don't know, because I, I, he, he left. Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But when he saw Jesus again in the temple, and he recognized who Jesus was, and Jesus says to him that, that second statement that we're going to look at in a second, see that you are made well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The very next verse, verse 15, it says, the man went away, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Here was a man, even though he had been given a new life by Jesus, was still willing to turn Jesus into the authorities in his town. 
And he was quick to join the side of the Jews who were already persecuting Jesus because of who he was and his views of the Sabbath. This man's reaction to Jesus was completely different from the man that we're going to read about in John chapter 19 next week. The man who had been born blind. You remember that man, when he was accosted by the Jews, was defending Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was excommunicated from the, from the synagogues, and, and it, he fell on his face and he worshipped Jesus, knowing who he was. That man was healed, I'm convinced. But this man, who had been healed the same miraculous way, was warned by Jesus, see that you sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, this question has been debated over the years. Is what did Jesus mean by that? Was Jesus implying, first of all, that this man had committed some specific sin that caused him to be uh, paralyzed? I, I doubt that. Jesus never pointed to that kind of thinking. But he was pointing to something perhaps much deeper. He was saying to this man, I'm talking about true repentance in the same way that John the Baptist spoke about repentance. He's talking about the sin that exists beneath our sinning. The sin that exists beneath our sinning, our sins. There is a sin like that, you know. That's the sin that I talked about that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. To refuse to allow God to be the Lord and the leader of our lives. To refuse to accept the fact that God has the right to be able to say to us, do this, and we do it. Jesus is saying to this man, unless you repent and turn away from your self-governed life and allow me to be the Lord, the leader of your life, you are in danger of something far worse than paralysis. And it is eternal. So stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. The one thing that John is pointing to in each of these signs is the fact that Jesus was far more than just a great teacher. He was far more than just a prophet. One who is greater than a, a healer of per, people's bodies. But he was God in human flesh. And as the God of human Mankind, the God of creation, he has the perfect right to say, follow me. Let me be the Lord, the leader of your life. And if you believe in me with all your heart, you will find life to the full. John 10, verse 10. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I believe I'm convinced that it's far more than what is called easy believism. That's the kind of belief that exists in our heads, and we say, oh, yeah, I'll accept that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is God in the flesh. It's in our minds. It's in our heads, but it never gets down into our hearts. and never comes out into our, our actions. That's the easy believism. James said, you have faith, but show me your faith by what you do, your works. You call Jesus Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say, Jesus said. 
He knows our hearts, and he knows the difference between a true believer and one who says but not believes. So he says, trust me, trust me. Follow me. Do what I ask. I can't begin to count the times in my own life when I have been strongly convinced of something that God wanted me to do. But I said, I'm not so certain I want to do that. I have said to myself, maybe somebody else will do it for me. What if I actually step out in faith and actually do what God asks me to do and it doesn't work out very well? What, what if I'm embarrassed by all of that? What if I'm seen as a failure? Maybe, maybe I'll come back to it tomorrow or not. Maybe God will give it to someone else to do. And that leaves me without the experience of, of God's power. It leaves me with a life that, well, is pretty much lived by the mud puddle instead of the ocean of God's grace and power. Dorothy Sayers put it so well. Refusing to let Jesus be the Lord and the leader of our lives is a sin that actually believes in nothing, cares for nothing, eventually seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which it will die. That's the definition of an invalid, spiritual invalid. Nothing to live for, and even nothing for which it will die. That could be called mud puddle living. If there's one thing that could be pointed to as a glaring weakness in the church of Jesus Christ today, it would be the hypocrisy of those who say, I believe, but are not doing what God asks of us when there's mystery involved. Maybe some of the critics of Christianity are right when they call us phony hypocrites because we don't actually trust in Jesus. We don't trust that he will empower us, that he will answer our prayers, that he will lead us into times and places where we've never been before, and it's better than the mud puddle by which we are sitting now. Can we say, I will put my trust in him? I love the words of Isaiah 35. I, I shared it with Dale and Bonnie this morning. These are the words that I've been praying for them all week long. And it says in Isaiah 35, verse 3 and 4, God says, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you.
So I ask this morning, do you want to be made whole? What God is asking of us this morning is that you would know that when he calls you into action, that you would follow, trust, and obey. You say, well, this is way out of my comfort zone, and I heard that from Dale and Body this week, but they followed. And I believe God is going to honor their prayers and their requests this morning. So for each of us, the question is, do you want to be made well yourself? Not your brother, not your wife, your husband, but do you? And Jesus says, then follow me into the mystery. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you that in all of our lives we have this firm confidence demonstrated over and over again in the scriptures and in the lives of the saints and those we know that you who have promised are faithful, that you are able to do far more than anything we could ask or imagine, that your love for us is so real and so dedicated to us that, that we can trust you for our unknowns and putting our confidence in you. We can live boldly, even through the mystery. So bless us again, we pray. Give us the courage and help us to follow Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Would you stand now for the parting benediction, a gift from God to you as you go on your way? Lift up your heads, people to him who was able to keep you from falling and to present you as spotless before the great throne of God. To him be the glory, both now and all the way to eternity. And God's people can say, Amen.